Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard Leduc. Thank you, Garrett. In this episode, we wanted to continue our discussion of the Council of 50 Minutes. We had talked a little bit, provided a little bit of historic context in part one and part two. We talked a little bit more about uh, some of the details of things that came out from that. and We spent a lot of time on Porter Rockwell. Oh, always. Yeah. And in and, and, and this podcast, we're going to... you. Tease. I, I want to tease a little more Porter Rockwell. I What I need is Richard's dad to listen to the end of the podcast. So I'm going to... I'm gonna, I'm going to backload the podcast <laughs> in that regard. Yes, so, Dan Leduke loves him some. Yeah, he loves Porter he Rockwell. loves Porter Rockwell, and uh, so we're gonna we want to keep him listening because I think Richard explained last time that his dad wouldn't listen to this for any reason at all. <laughs> uh, Dan Leduke is is no Rachel's mom, right? And so who is? The, right. Who is? Well, who is who is? Uh, I thought one of the things we didn't really get to cover is. One of the cool aspects of the Council of 50 Minutes is it actually provides us with some more primary source teachings of Hiram Smith. And so I thought I'd share a little bit of a few of those because there's some places where Hiram Smith is talking in the meeting. Um, one example is there, 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 this is of course, you know, in 1844 and Joseph and Hiram are still alive. And they're talking about creating this kingdom, going out. And William Clayton records Hiram Smith saying this, said that the time was at hand when the prophecy should be fulfilled and when the ensign should be lifted up and the standard to the people. And he believed that if we will set up the standard and raise the ensign, uh, that the honest in heart would come. Uh, that That is a pretty cool st- sentiment. You know, we've heard that, you know, the ensign to the nations. And of course, Joseph is the one who uses that, that terminology of the standard of truth. And Hiram's going to go on to say on another occasion that Joseph had just finished speaking to the council and Hiram got up and said, you know, I agree with everything Joseph said. And he, he said that it accorded so well with his own feelings that he wanted to say a few words. When Moses was appointed to lead the people, God gave him Aaron to speak for him. When God called Enoch, he wanted to know why God had done so, inasmuch as he was an illiterate man. God told him to go forth, and he would justify his words. Enoch went forth in the exercise of faith, not in the exercise of great words. God walked with him 300 years. Moses had power. Before him, Mount Sinai trembled and shook to the center. Had Moses not gone forth in the exercise of faith, he would have not accomplished the work which God had sent him to do. We stand in the same light. We have greater power and are called to do a greater work. We have more power than Enoch and have a greater work to do than Enoch had, and we shall accomplish it. He then referred to the principles of a theocracy and hopes that every man will get into the spirit of his calling. This is a great quote, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. That this... I love the the idea of Hiram Smith that 
It actually doesn't matter how well you can talk about doing something, that your words, that what matters is whether or not you have faith. And and really, when I first read this, you know, it, Hiram reminded me, you know, that Moses was not a great leader at first. Moses was slow of speech, and there's a reason why Aaron's there to help him out. Now, he also helps build a calf, I guess, but but Moses became who he was. Joseph, similarly, is someone who is not naturally gifted in, in, in well, he's certainly not naturally gifted in, in his education, in his writing. Now, as he, as he teaches himself, as he has more experiences, he's going to become great. But uh, it's an interesting comparison. And also a comparison that they're very cognizant of the dispensations that have come before them. They understand that the dispens- this is the dispensation of the fullness of times. And because they understand that they often compare what they're doing to those that came before them. They respect and they revere Moses and they respect and they revere Enoch. And yet because this is the dispensation of the fullness of times, they believe that God will give them as much or more power than even those great prophets did. So I think that's a, it's a pretty cool, yeah, uh, interesting aspect coming from Hiram Smith. One uh, other unique teaching, I think, in the council, this is actually very different than how it's often taught, is Joseph's going to make a reference, obviously, to the kingdom of God on earth, but also to the vision that Daniel saw. Now, this vision of the stone that's cut out of the mountain without hands is something that is, it is often discussed. Even Joseph's going to reference it in terminologies of, of preaching the gospel. Right. I think that's that's how we usually see it. In the Council of 50, Joseph's going to give a different interpretation of that uh, prophecy. And he's going to, he's going, well, I'll just read it for you. Because, I mean, m- mainly, whenever there's anything good in the podcast, it's just me quoting Joseph Smith. So, um, he says, there is a distinction between the church of God and the kingdom of God. N- notice that we, we generally don't, in fact, today there isn't a distinction. Yeah, we don't make it's just that the kingdom of God is the church. Um, it's an entire distinct and separate government. The church is a spiritual matter and a spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom which Daniel saw was not a spiritual kingdom, but it was designed to be got up for the safety and salvation of the saints by protecting them in their rights and worship. So Joseph saying, as they're debating leaving the United States and going to a foreign country and, and building their own kingdom that, that the, it's a, it's actually Joseph talking about there being a separation of church and state. It's him saying the kingdom of God is the governmental structure where the church will be safe, but the church is the church and the kingdom is the kingdom. Now, they're both of God. So, I mean, it's you, you, you realize that they're very similar, but and, uh, for a Latter-day Saint, they probably, I mean, you know that when Jesus comes again, not everyone's going to, on earth is going to already be a Latter-day Saint, nor are they all going to be forced to immediately become Latter-day Saints. The, the, the reality is they're going nor to... Nor would they ever be forced. No, they can't, they can't be forced and be saved. And so this idea that people will still have freedom to choose even when those choices are negatively impacting um, you know, their own progression. I mean, that that's that's something that Joseph sees. So when he's talking about the kingdom here, what he's talking about is the government that they intend to set up 
that will allow for freedom of anyone to practice any religion. And one of the religions that will be set up in that kingdom will be will be the church. The church will be safe there, but so will any other kingdom. I'm mean, sorry, any other church in that kingdom. And, and this is what he's going to go on to say. Anything that would tolerate a man in the worship of his God under his own vine and fig tree would be tolerated of God. The literal kingdom of God and the church of God are two distinct things. The gifts of prophets, evangelists, etc. were never designed to govern men in civil matters. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with giving commandments to damn a man spiritually. It only has power to make a man amenable to his fellow man. God gave commandments that if a man should man killed, he should be killed himself. But it did not damn him. In relation to the Constitution of the United States, there is but one difficulty, and that is the Constitution provides the things we want, but it lacks the power to carry the laws into effect. We want to alter it so as to make it imperative on the officers to enforce the protection of all men in their rights. He then, this is a Clayton recording, he then showed how the Constitution ought to be amended. Men are complaining all over the United States, but we have the most reason to complain, Joseph says. So again, a fascinating thing here where Joseph's explaining that there is a separation, even though they're creating this kingdom made up of Latter-day Saints, that there is a difference between the secular government and the religious government. You actually see this play out in Nauvoo because Brigham Young's going to be one of the, you know, one of the city council members and Joseph Smith's going to eventually be the, 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 the mayor. Well, Brigham Young will actually disagree with Joseph multiple times on city council issues, like whether or not people should allow hogs to roam free without being fenced, which is a, well, is a serious problem. Anyone listening to me who has pigs is well aware that this is a problem because they eat anything. Um, and they have a real, they, you know, they have a real debate about it. So you don't see Brigham Young do that when it's a religious issue. When it's a religious issue, he provides counsel and he provides his opinion. But when Joseph says it, Brigham Young says, all right, that's what we're doing. Um, which is really, but when it was a secular thing, when it was, you know, dogs inside the city limits of Nauvoo, well, that, that's something that can be debated and you might come down on either side. Obviously, if Joseph says, I'm going to support someone, then a bunch of people are jumping ship. But that's different than Joseph saying, as the prophet, I I'm command support. you to, yep. Yeah, it's yep, very different. It's very different. And 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 honestly, that uh, it's something that we don't have to deal with as much anymore in the country because um, the church is so stridently neutral, right, officially. I mean, they're going to read that letter every single election <laughs> about, we take no position, you know. <laughs> And, and there's a lot of legal reasons why the church has to do that, as well as, you know, it's representative of the church um, in general. And, um, you know, you can be a Democrat and be um, uh, the best Latter-day Saint in the world, and you can be a Republican and be the best Latter-day Saint in the world, and you can be a libertarian and you can be a socialist. You can, we have members of the Communist Party that are members of the church. We have, we have countries where Latter-day Saints are required to be members of the Communist Party. And, and they're members of the church. And they're some of the most amazing, faithful people who would do anything to help anyone. So I, I think one of the things that as you study early Latter-day Saint history, 
and you try to bring uh, current political divisiveness into into focus, you recognize that while politics have always been divided, the person who's trying to tell you like, no, it's worse now than it's ever been, you always want to say, well, there was a civil war. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's not bad. I am willing to say that it's bad right now, but I'm not willing to say it's worse than when we were actually killing 600 plus thousand Americans. It's not that, you know, and, and you might, you know, then someone on the, you know, cynically on their side, well, yet, okay, fine. Even then, even if you say yet, it's certainly not as bad, however rancorous it might be. But people like Joseph, you know, while he sees politics as a mean to an end, he, he does not see politics as, as the end, right? Joseph isn't supporting someone, even though they're a particular party, regardless of what they have to say to the church. In fact, his conflict with the political parties come when they go on record saying that they're not going to help the saints, even though it's the political party that supposedly has helped them, the Mormons in the past. Brigham Young as well um, is is going to face this. And we'll, we'll talk more about this when we talk about the move west. I know I just keep teasing. It. I'm going to keep teasing that. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll bring that up when we talk about Porter Rockwell next. Yeah, which will be just in a moment. But I mean, even after this one. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but Brigham Young will deal with this too, because in order for the church to establish itself in in what would later then become Utah Territory, the Latter-day Saints are, are essentially forced to deal with the machinations of government that they had so desperately tried to get out of. But the moment they started trying to deal in the machinations of government, you know, electing representatives, things like that, partisanship among average Latter-day Saints led to all kinds of conflicts among these believers. And and Brigham Young himself, just, he couldn't, he just had no toleration for it. I, he Absolutely, he encouraged people to vote certain ways and to vote for certain things. But he didn't, he didn't believe that a political party was ahead of the church for any reason. The idea of well, I'm a member of the church, but I disagree with their their political position on X. That was not Brigham Young. <laughs> uh, Brigham Young was, well, this is the church's position, so now that's my position. And that was that was how he did it. At any rate, um, let me go on uh, to uh, share some uh, some other aspects of what of what Joseph has to teach in the council. Now, I know we already shared uh, in the last couple various aspects of the feelings of members of the Council of 50 and what they had to say about leaving the country, about how they felt their rights had been taken away as Americans. This is not actually from the Council of 50. This is this quote that I'm going to read is from Orson Pratt, and it's the last thing he publishes in the Times and Seasons when the Latter-day Saints are getting ready to leave. Now, refresher, if you haven't listened to the other two Council of 50 podcast, you should go back and listen to them. But um, he he feels, Pratt feels, that there is just uh, essentially no redeeming qualities of the United States. Now, this is December, December 31st, last, last you know day of the year, basically, of, of 1845. And the saints not only are just hastily. I mean, you have so many accounts of people desperately building wagons as fast as they possibly can. 
And now they have all this intelligence, like we talked about last time, that the federal government's going to come and obliterate them. And so this last message that Pratt publishes in the Times and Seasons kind of lets you know how the Latter-day Saints are feeling at the time. It, uh, Pratt is not known for pulling punches in his uh, talking. None of the Pratts are. In fact, <laughs> being a Pratt means you, you are going to tell people how it actually is. The time is at hand. For me to take a long and lasting farewell to these eastern countries, being included with my family among the tens of thousands of American citizens who have the choice of death or banishment beyond the Rocky Mountains, I've preferred the latter. It is with greatest joy that I forsake this republic. I And all the saints have abundant reasons to rejoice that they are counted worthy to be cast out as exiles from this wicked nation. We've received nothing but one continual scene of the most horrid and unrelenting persecution at their hand for the last 16 years. If our Heavenly Father will preserve us and deliver us out of the hands of the bloodthirsty Christians of these United States and not suffer any more of us to be martyred to gratify their holy piety, I for one shall be very thankful. Perhaps we may have to suffer much in the land of our exile, but our suffering there will be from another cause. There will be no Christian banditti to afflict us all the day long. No holy pious priest to urge on, uh, holy pious priest to murder us by the scores. No editors to urge on house burnings, devastation, and death. If we die in the dens and caves of the Rocky Mountains, we shall die where freedom reigns triumphantly. And then he kind of gives this as his final words. Liberty in a solitary place and in a desert is far more preferable than martyrdom in these pious states. That, how do you really feel, though, Orson? <laughs> you know, right? I mean, he, 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 you can see the mentality of the pioneer forebears when they're leaving Nauvoo is not, well, things have been rough a little bit in Illinois. Why don't we move somewhere else and try again? It is, we are fleeing a wicked nation that is not only doing nothing to stop people from killing us, it is now planning to take part in the killing. Now, again, let me reiterate, there were conniving politicians in D.C., hard to believe, but imagine conniving politicians in D.C. that were deliberately deceiving the Latter-day Saints, telling them that the federal government was going to send an army to obliterate them. Thomas Ford, the governor of Illinois, bragged, as we talked about in, in several podcasts. I think I mentioned this a lot. Uh, it's, yeah. I, I feel like in almost every podcast, I'm going to have to work in A, how much I hate Thomas Ford, B, <laughs> how much he's a liar, and C, how much I hope that the part of DNC 76 that says that hell is only temporary doesn't actually apply to him. But where he says that, uh, that, he deliberately lied to the Latter-day Saints to get them to leave in the middle of winter. And, and that's a nice little pithy political achievement. But I want you to just think of the thousands of, of, of men, women, and children. Women with three-week-old babies that are leaving their homes in the middle of winter because they believe an army is coming to kill them. We often talk about the... The river freezing over, like it's that cold is the, is that the setting can, that yeah, they're... Yeah, that they can cross the river on the ice. 
And that's the and that cold that setting is and we're on our way out. And he's and he's happy and excited that he was able to He's bragging about it. He wrote a book after ten years of reflection on what he did, bragging about what an amazing job he did as governor by lying to the Mormons and causing them to flee into the wilderness and die by the dozens and the hundreds. He doesn't brag about them dying, but that's the unspoken part, right? Well, what happened to the Latter-day Saints in Iowa? A thousand of them died. I can't, why, I can't imagine. Why did any of them die? Maybe it's because they left months before they thought they had to because they thought they were being chased by by a, a, federal, a federal army. Yep. Uh, and, you know, look, so Pratt sentiments are not alone. It won't surprise you that uh, John Taylor, as we talked about last time, <laughs> still feels a little bit of uh, rancor towards the government. We owe the United States nothing, is <laughs> actually his quote. Um, I don't know, again, what does John Taylor really think? We go out of the country by force as exiles from freedom. The government and the people of the United States owe us millions for the destruction of life and property in Missouri and Illinois. The blood of our best men will preserve it until God comes out of his hiding place and gives this nation a hotter place than he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow. Again, this is probably not what was taught in your CTRB class. Um, I, I don't know that, that, you know, He's saying this with a limp, for heaven's sake. Yeah, he's saying it because there's a bullet in the back of his knee from Carthage. I mean, to to the Latter-day Saints in 1845, prepping to be driven in the winter snows out of the country, they the, the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith was in many ways the end of their allegiance to the United States. Now, look, obviously the enemies of the Mormons are going to say things like they're a bunch of traitors trying to plan a rebellion, blah, 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 blah. But what are they really doing? That Their allegiance is ending because they're leaving it. We aren't safe here. People are murdered and no one cares. Houses are burned down and no one cares. Women are assaulted and no one cares. Our prophets are murdered and no one cares. So we're just going to leave. We're going to leave. And the fact that they then reflect on what is taught in the scriptures, right? That when you cast the righteous out from among you, the judgment of God shall surely come. They take that to heart. They really believe that part of the reason why they're leaving is because God is going to smite the, the, the nation. Now, we, we often talk as Latter-day Saints about how much, you know, we you know, the, the constitution is, is inspired. The men who, you know, uh, created the constitution were inspired by God, that God raised them up. Sometimes that brings us to a point of being completely unwilling to criticize any aspect of the constitution. Hopefully we don't get to that point, given the fact that the constitution, you know, legalized slavery, uh, you know, for, uh, for four score and seven years. Uh, uh, well, I guess the constitution wasn't an act that long, but but, you know, since 1789, slavery is legalized in the United States by the Constitution of the United States. I don't think you'll find very many people that are like, oh, yeah, that was the best part of it. Um, so we all recognize that the Constitution had imperfections and flaws. And Joseph Smith 
also recognizes, and, and like, like we just gave with the quote, he calls out those flaws, that one of the flaws of the Constitution of the United States is that it didn't require political officers to defend the rights of minorities. It's all fine and good that a governor has the right to defend, has, has the power to defend people's rights. But having the power to defend people's rights and not actually using it is the same thing as not having any power to defend someone's rights. And that's what they just kept hearing. Oh, yeah, I'd I love to help you, but I, you know, I just couldn't possibly intervene. Joseph wanted the Constitution to be amended to require government officials to intervene to protect the rights of, of those who were persecuted. Now, you could say that more of that is the case now, but certainly not the case in the 19th century. Um, I want to quote a little bit of Brigham Young here, and by a little bit, I mean pages. Um, <laughs> again, talking after Joseph is murdered, there's just some sweet sentiments that Brigham Young is going to share. And part of what I want you to trace as I, as I read this you know, fairly lengthy quote, I don't know how much I'll break it up, but is that we often think as Latter-day Saints that Brigham Young knew exactly where the Latter-day Saints were going, that Joseph Smith knew exactly. They certainly are talking about going to California, which is Mexican California, which includes Utah. They are certainly talking about going to the Rocky Mountains. But you actually watch in the Council of 50 as they begin to narrow in to the place that they are going to go and, and the reasons why they're choosing the places that they're choosing. Brigham Young says, the propriety of fitting out a company for this expedition, this is the, the, this initial expedition to go seek out and you know be the lead advance company, is what we want to enter into. How many shall go and who or whether or any, we know that this was one of Joseph's measures. So, so Brigham Young's selling point is, this is what Joseph wanted, for to send out an expedition to go find the place where the kingdom of God on earth could be built. Brigham Young says, my feelings are, if we cannot have the privilege of carrying out Joseph's measures, I would rather lie down and have my head cut off at once. To carry out Joseph's measures is sweeter to me than the honey or the honeycomb. I want to see the Lamanites come in by the thousands, and the time has come. While Joseph was living, it seemed as though he was hurried by the Lord all the time, and especially for that last year. It seemed that he had laid out work for his church, which would last them 20 years to carry out. I used to wonder why it was that he used to be hurried so, not supposing that he was going to die. But now I understand the reason. With regard to the propriety of going ahead in this thing, we are all of one mind. With regard of how and when and where to begin, that is what we want to investigate. I have no doubt or dubity in my mind with regard to the Lord communicating the knowledge, no more than I have that I can walk home. Very, very practical. God is going to tell us when and how to go. I know that as much as I know that I'm walking home after this meeting. Uh, and they weren't drinking in this meeting, so I could clearly walk home. Um, he said, when the 12 have been separated from Joseph in England or in the Eastern States or elsewhere, I defy any man to point out the time when I was in the dark in regard to what should be done. I have not been in the dark pertaining to any matter. Some have been fearful that I would blunder in the dark, but it is not so. When any person has any doubt and manifests a fear of that to me, 
that the 12 or the authorities of the church will blunder in the dark, it is always seems nonsense to me. I know God lives, that there is no man who will always go in the way of duty. I know, that, I know as God lives that there is no man who will always go in the way of his duty. But God will keep him right and preserve him until he's accomplished his work. And there would not have got a gun gone off in Carthage had not God seen that Joseph had done enough and he took him home to his rest. So this is a beautiful insight into Brigham Young and his feelings. And, and, and frankly, Brigham Young is, you know, I know I've shared this story before, but it's, it's in these meetings that you see just how defensive of Joseph that Brigham Young is. Now he always was, he always was adamant in following Joseph before. I mean, when you look at the Quorum of the Twelve, there are very few members of the apostles that didn't at some point, at least for a small bit, become staggered in their faith and in their confidence of Joseph Smith. Orson Pratt, who we just read angrily denouncing the United States, you know, in, in 1842, uh, surrounding the John C. Bennett, you know, uh, uh, lies and, and, and his false teachings of spiritual wifery. Orson Pratt's going to, with his wife, apostatize from the church. And then, you know, he'll be rebaptized by the end of the year and he'll be just as faithful after that. Orson Hyde will be stymied in his faith in Missouri for a time. Um, uh, th- there are just several members of the apostleships that are that, that of the apostleship that have at different times lost their, their faith and way. The men who never did are the men who are going to end up becoming prophets of the church. Orson Pratt had been an apostle much, much, much longer than uh, had John Taylor or Wilfred Woodruff. But when Brigham Young is is the prophet, um, he receives the inspiration that the quorum needed to be reorganized on the basis of when someone last entered the quorum. Both Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt were temporarily dropped from the quorum and then they were brought back sometimes within that same year. And Brigham Young stated that the clock needed to start ticking in, that 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 changed their seniority to when they came back into it. And that's the reason why Orson Hyde um, you know, is 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 not going to be the most senior apostle when when Brigham Young uh when Brigham Young passed. What well, well, the reason why Orson Pratt won't be the most senior apostle. And so what are you left with? You're left with John Taylor, who essentially was an adamant follower of Joseph Smith uh, as he taught, you know, obviously they're following Jesus, but doesn't doubt or criticize Joseph in that regard. Wilfred Woodruff, similarly, Wilfred Woodruff is, is not among the original quorum of the 12, like Orson Pratt is and Orson Hyde is, but those two original members are going to fall away and then come back. Um, it, it is something magnanimous, I'll tell you, about Orson Hyde, right? That he's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for essentially 30 years. And then Brigham reorganizes the Quorum, and Orson Hyde doesn't miss a beat. He goes from being president of the Quorum of the Twelve to not being president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And the next general conference meeting is talking about what an amazing prophet Brigham Young is. Uh, I mean, talk about, you know, we, we had people who had faith crises when President Nelson, like 
all prophets call the new first presidency. And we'd become so accustomed to members of the first presidency just staying in the first presidency forever, right? That we there were people who were really upset and offended that Elder Uchtdorf was was no longer in the first presidency. Now, look, I I love Elder Uchtdorf. I mean, I, I, his teachings uh, are are some of the most beautiful and profound to me in my life. I've I've loved him since he was called as an apostle because he speaks directly to my soul. Uh, I I I feel the love of the Lord every time I hear him speak. But you know who wasn't offended by the fact that Elder Uchtdorf was brought back into the Quorum of the Twelve? Elder Uchtdorf. And, and it's a strange thing. And, uh, we've talked about this before on other reasons, and we'll talk about it again when we talk about plural marriage, which we'll never talk about. <laughs> At some point, we'll talk about it. Just thirty-seven parter. It's I, coming. It's yeah, coming. I, it's around my, the we have it. Bend. We have it tentatively, you know, dated out to like twenty thirty-seven. I think. Yes. Yeah, I think. I think I wanted to talk about plural marriage to coincide with my retirement from BYU, um, and I think that that would be that would be good. But. Um, it, the point being in all seriousness that, that uh, we sometimes have a tendency to be more offended for the people being affected by something than the people themselves. Elder Uchtdorf, you know, doesn't, doesn't go on Dateline and say, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I'd served so faithfully in the first presidency and they, this kick. Well, of course he wouldn't say it like that. He'd say it with a German accent, but (laughs) yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that here. Um, but um, it, it it's an interesting thing that Orson Hyde is not stymied in his faith. Imagine, just imagine, you are the most senior apostle. You are the heartbeat away from the presidency, I guess, if you want to call it that, for most of your adult life. Leading the quorum, you're the one conducting the quorum meetings. And then the prophet of the Lord receives the inspiration that the quorum needs to be reorganized on the basis of when you last came into the quorum. And who does that affect most? It affects Orson Hyde. He is the one, and Orson Pratt, but they're the ones who are affected most by that. Do either of them begin to talk about how Brigham Young must be a fallen prophet because it affects them most? I think we have a tendency to criticize what prophets say on the basis of how much it affects us. That, well, this isn't the result I wanted, so I think the prophet's wrong about that. Well, we we see a lot of people um, uh, with criticisms that could have been far more valid um, that that support what prophets have to say. Um, An example on the other side of this uh, is that when the saints go finally do go to, you know, spoiler alert, they're going to Salt Lake. I know I'm, I, I've been building it up. You're like, are they going to Oregon? What about Texas? Is that still in play? But no, uh, they go to Salt Lake. They go to Mexican, California. Samuel Brannon, who leads hundreds of saints on the ship Brooklyn, instead of going the overland route, which is obviously fraught with all kinds of perils, they take the water route which is actually really long as well because they go all the way up and around, um, uh, you know, the, the 
tip of South America. They actually go to Hawaii too, and then back to. Uh, to well, you got to stop in at. Hawaii. Well, I mean, well, okay, so maybe that was the best part of the trip. Um, but they they go to what is today San Francisco Bay Area, where there's you know Yerba Buena is what they're calling it at the time, and there's very few settlements there. When Samuel Brandon lands, you know, and, and sees, you know, he, he knows where they're going is the middle of an inhospitable desert with a giant lake with salt water that you can't use to irrigate your crops with. And, you know, he's looking around Northern California and he's like, have, have you seen this place? Like, <laughs> first of all, it's, it's the climate's nice. I mean, you can grow stuff here. It rains. Uh, I mean... And so he actually tries to encourage Brigham Young to continue moving on to the Bay Area. And again, we we think of California as being this place densely. I could never move to San Francisco. I'd have to live in a one-bedroom studio apartment, and I'd pay $4,000 a month for it. This is the California that they haven't found gold in yet. There's almost no one living there. The California Bay Area has fewer than 300 people living in the entire area. The Latter-day Saints could move there in mass. They'd be 20,000 people. They would dominate the entire area. And I'd be working at BYU San Francisco right now. (laughs) But they don't. And the reason why they don't is Brigham Young has essentially seen in vision that if they go to that better land, which seems there doesn't seem to be any reason to not go. It's better water. They want access to a seaport, so now they can trade their goods much more easily. Remember, this is before the time of trains. I mean, there is some rail traffic, but it's no. You are you're two decades away from a transcontinental railroad, right? This is the, the reality of of train travel being across the country to market your goods. That that's hard to anticipate that. So that'd be great. You'd be right there in this beautiful port. No one else lives there. We'd be able to grow our crops. I mean, everyone knows how fertile, you know, uh, the Napa Valley is. I mean, no one's, no one's, you know, I, I mean, back then they still drank wine for the sacraments. So think about that. They use a sacramental wine, sacramental wine, sacramental wine. Um, and Brigham Young essentially has a vision uh, to, to the effect where he tells Brandon that if they were to go there, that in no time they would be flooded out. By and, other Gentile settlers. And so when when is the time frame that it's Brennan a, in, This is essentially 1848. Interesting. That Yeah, that uh, he's wanting Brigham to keep going. And Brigham's saying no. And then in 1849, gold is discovered. And to give you an idea of how quickly the portion of California, Mexican California, that we call California today, the state of California, how quickly it's populated. In 1848 maybe 7,000 Mexicans and and Americans living there. Again, probably about 100,000 American Indians, but neither the Mexicans or the Americans are counting them, okay? So uh, there's probably about 7,000. By 1850, there are well over 100,000 people living in the same area. When we talk about the 49ers and people headlong killing themselves to get to the gold fields in California... The, the rush is on is no joke. You go, you essentially increase the population by 10 times in a year and a half because of, of this pursuit of gold, right? And the Mormons would have absolutely been just overwhelmed by population. Yeah, they would have been overwhelmed. Now, they would have been a substantial portion of the population in 1849 and less so in 1850 
and lesson 51 and lesson 52. And if they would have, they would have already been a minority by 1850. So the whole point is we've got to get out of the United States and go somewhere where we're no longer the minority because we've learned by sad experience that when we're the minority, the majority is going to persecute us. So if they'd gone to California, so you can see the difference, right? Brandon, who thought he was a real follower. In fact, he's going to clash with Brigham Young over this. He'll clash with him over tithing, clash with him over other things and eventually leave the church. He will make a ton of money as a speculator in selling, you know, like mining equipment to miners that are coming and then lose all of his money eventually. And I think there's a story that he eventually ends up selling pencils. So that's, it's a respectable profession. Anyway, um, uh, all the pencil salesmen. Yeah, to all the pencil salesmen listening, this was not a dig at what you have to say. Um, Brigham Young's going to go on in another quote here in the council minutes. He's going to say, there is no place, but we shall go along just right if we'll be one heart and one mind. So Brigham's saying, you know, you guys are really worried about whether or not we're going to end up going to the right place. If we go together in a unified spirit, that's going to be the right place. That's what he's trying to say. He goes on, quote, the time has come that we must seek out a location. The yoke of the Gentiles is broke. Their doom is sealed. There is not the least fiber can possibly be discovered that binds us to the Gentile world. It is for us to take care of ourselves and to go and pick out a place where we can go and dwell in peace. After we'd finished the houses and got our endowment, he's talking about the temple and the Nauvoo house. Not but the Lord can get, but the Lord can give it to us in the wilderness but I have no doubt that we shall get it here. But we want a home where we can gather by the thousands and dwell in peace. These are some matters laying before us, and I want the brethren to speak their minds freely. I want the brethren to be patient, to stop, and to consider. Don't get into a hurry. We can stop as long as we like and meet as often as we have a mind to. Don't be in a hurry. We are in eternity. We have all of eternity before us. There's no need to be in a hurry. Again, beautiful sentiments here where uh, he wants them to stop and consider. Goes on. Now, in the in between the mountains to the... Now, if we go between the mountains to the place under consideration, because they're talking about the Great Basin, there will be no jealousies from any nation. But if we stop this side of the mountains, there will be complaints that will reach us. Brigham's, you know, what, why are we going on the over the Rocky Mountains? Because then no one will care what we do. If we stop, you know, along the way, then people say, oh, the Mormons, there. There have been some objections to the country because the land is high. Obviously, you know, everyone, life elevated, right, in Utah. Um, uh, but it's surrounded by very high mountains, which should moderate the climate very much. If we get to this place, we can strengthen ourselves and be better able to grapple with our foes. If we should go where we can sustain ourselves comfortably, it will soon become the greatest market in America for all kinds of the productions of the soil. At the same time, we would fill up all the country to the coast and soon hold the balance of power over the whole country. Then if they will give us a portion of the country, we will defend their flag for the time being. And if they did not walk up to their agreement, we could make them and set up our own standard. 10,000 men would do more to sustain us there than 200,000 men would on the coast. The same discussion that he's having with um, Brandon. After we get there, the first thing he would do is he would fortify ourselves, which can be easily done. You see how much fear they actually have? They really believe that the, the Secretary of War is saying that they need to be obliterated. 
Well, if you're going to obliterate us, you're going to have to climb up a mountain to do it first. That's the idea behind it. It's going to be a lot easier to defend ourselves there. You're going to have to chase us a long way and you're going to have a hard time doing it. But we're not just going to lay down and die anymore. And so it's a very different mindset than, you know, pioneer children saying as they walked and walked. Um, he goes on to say that, um, that he should feel like fortifying almost, uh, it, 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 he should almost feel like fortifying before he took time to pray. So, but not, nah, he still pray first. If it's a cold country and a hard country to live in, then we won't be envied. But if we go to a good country before we're able to defend it, we would have as much trouble with the mobs as we do here. Now, that is as prophetic an utterance as, as you're going to find. And again, to my Utah listeners, I'm sorry that what it means is that Brigham Young is saying that he's deliberately looking for a place that's very difficult to live, that no one else wants to live in. Again, he still keeps going right through Wyoming. It isn't stopping. He doesn't. He's not stopping in Rollins because it still live right. Uh, and, and, but but the reality is, you know, I love Utah. I live in Utah. But the reason for going to Utah, you know, I, I'll occasionally I taught Utah history as well, and occasionally students would say, "I just don't understand why the why the Mormons even settle in Utah." I mean, why would they settle next to a lake that's made out of salt and there's desert and that's exactly why they're settling here. They're settling there because they know that it's a place that no one would naturally. Why would I stop in among a bunch of Mormons in Utah and not be allowed to drink or have any cat houses when I can just go on to Oregon or San Francisco or San Diego and get much better land and all the you know all the booze and whatever I want? That's the thinking that that actually plays itself out. Thousands and thousands of Americans will move through the Latter-day Saint lands in, in Utah territory, but very, very few will stop and settle. Um, in fact, the fact that very few would stop and settle is part of what drives the Homestead Act, at least when the Republican Party is pushing the Homestead Act of 1860, one of the reasons they give is that the only way that you're going to actually destroy Mormonism, which is one of the Republican Party's stated goals at the time in 1860, the only way you're going to destroy it is by flooding Utah with properly Christian settlers. Why? How? By giving them free land. We'll just give all the all the land away in Utah for free, and then we'll get as soon as we get enough Gentiles in Utah, enough non-Mormons in Utah, then that'll tip the balances. We'll elect non-Mormon uh, governors. We'll elect a non-Mormon legislature, and we'll just drive the church out of existence. So the Republican Party by 1860s is is essentially trying to reenact. What has happened in Missouri and Illinois and Ohio? If we can get the Mormons to being a minority again, then we can treat them however we want again. This this is fascinating. This this will have to be a a, a nineteen parter. Well, I mean, just on on the on on the origins of the Republican Party and some of these things, because I can almost guarantee that the thing you just said there came as quite a surprise to to many a listener that the Republican Party, one of the basic planks of the platform is the elimination yeah of- when the Re- when the republican parties formed when so uh we'll go into depth in this some other day and i'll just keep saying that to make it so i can skip over things yeah we, we we'll never talk about this again. yeah we this is frankly we probably were going to talk about something else today in fact like, <laughs> don't worry next we week we'll about t- cancel 50 minutes i don't even know what are we talking about um uh yeah the first 
not only was the first Republican presidential platform an anti-Mormon platform, which was a big shock. So the, the, the Latter-day Saints have, have kind of made a cautious alliance with the Whig party when they first get to Utah territory. And it's Millard Fillmore who, who sees to it. The Latter-day Saints uh, have Utah territory created and he appoints Brigham Young to be the governor, which first of all, only made the only logic sense, right? Because there's only one large body of people living in Utah territory and it is the Mormons and Brigham Young is their leader. And so he appoints Brigham Young to be the governor. And so now we have, we have a huge listener base in Fillmore. I would assume that at least 90% of our listeners are in the Beaver to Fillmore area. <laughs> but so, so why, so Fillmore at one point in Utah history was, they make it the capital of the territory because, because, because they love Millard Fillmore. There you go. For Latter-day Saints, Millard Fillmore is the first president who treats them like American citizens. I mean, he, he, he's, he's the first. Look, the, the president before him, Zachary Taylor, and as we talked about in a previous podcast, you know, all good Whig presidents do one thing, and that's die. <laughs> um, because William Henry Harrison was elected and dies 100 days into office. Well, Zachary Taylor... He's elected. He's a slave-owning plantation owner from from Louisiana, and he becomes convinced that there are that the Latter Day Saints are traitors to the country. In part because William Smith, who's apostatized and formed his own church, which fails, and then he forms another one, and that fails, and then he joins another one, and then he leaves that one and joins another one. Uh, that was just an aside, um, but. Um, um, William Smith has sent this entire, you know, petition to the government saying don't admit Deseret, which is what Utah was called at the time. Don't admit Deseret as a territory or state because they're evil, they're, you know, plotting to kill me, they wanted to overthrow the government, and they're practicing polygamy. And Zachary Taylor, who's this war hero and big-time patriot, he's so bothered by it that he's adamant that he will that he will not let the Latter-day Saints join as a territory. And in fact, says something to the effect that as long as I'm alive, the Mormons will never have a territory. I'm not saying. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not not saying. I'm not saying that God then removed an impediment to that occurring. But very shortly thereafter, Zachary Taylor gets sick and dies. <laughs> and his vice president is Millard Fillmore. And Millard Fillmore, unlike Zachary Taylor, instead of utterly refusing to allow the Mormons to form a territory, he grants that petition and, and, and signs that bill through Congress. And, and Brigham Young's made the, the, the governor. And so ceremonially, they, they make Fillmore the capital of the territory. And the reason why, too, is that Fillmore is far more centrally located in Utah than, than Salt Lake. I mean, Salt Lake is... It's not really centrally located at all. It's just northern Utah. Fillmore is much more centrally located. So it makes more sense for the capital to be there. The problem is no one else moved there. My apologies to the people currently living there. Um, but And so it was the territory capital for a while, but they eventually moved it back to Salt Lake just for convenience purposes. But uh, Millard Fillmore is, is, is well-respected. And in fact, oh, I could tell all kinds of stories. We need to go back to what we're talking about. This this is the Millard Fillmore. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. We like to another yeah. episode of we the felt, Millard Fillmore yeah, yeah. podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the Millard <laughs> Fillmore podcast with your host, not Zachary Taylor. Um, so uh, another aspect of 
of these teachings in the Council of 50 that I want to spend a little bit of time on was Doctrine Code Section 136, which, which Brigham Young receives at winter quarters, that essentially confirms many of the things that these men are feeling and thinking. They feel like the nation has rejected them. They feel like the nation has driven them out, that the nation has has murdered the prophets. And, and the Lord, in that revelation of Brigham Young, says things like this. My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. So here again, the Lord reiterating, I know that life is hard, and that's actually the point of it, right? That it's hard so that you can become refined. Let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord as God, that his eyes may be opened that he may see, and that his ears may be opened that he may hear. For my spirit is sent into the world to enlighten the humble and the contrite and to the condemnation of the ungodly. And hear the Lord, knowing what they're going, what they're feeling in their hearts, says, Thy brethren have rejected you and your testimony. Even the nation has driven you out. So as much as we, you know, we quote Doctrine and Covenant sections about the Constitution being inspired by God, we also have constitutional we also have Doctrine and Covenant sections saying that the nation, the United States, drove uh, the Latter-day Saints from the country. Um now, during all of this violence and the, uh, the back and forth that was going on, um, the, the great difficulties, I thought I told you I'd tell you another Porter Rockwell story. Again, Dan's ears just picked up. Yeah, they sure did. Like, what? Um, so in um, late, well, it's fall of 1845, anti-Mormon mobs have really picked up their efforts. They are burning down Mormon settlements, and I mean by the dozens of houses at a time. And so you have all these Latter-day Saints, these men and women and children, who have all their lives into these farms that they've built in places like Yale, Rome, uh, and Lima, um, these settlements that are outside of Nauvoo. And all at once, you know, a mob shows up in the middle of the night and, and forces them out of their house, burns their house down with all their stuff in it, burns all their wheat and their haystacks down, uh, burns their barns down and tells them, if you don't leave, we'll kill you. So you have all of these women and children that are being essentially ethnically cleansed from the areas that they live being driven to Nauvoo. And so you, you end up having a fairly steady stream of refugees from these outlying Mormon settlements, making their way to, to Nauvoo to try to get some kind of safety. It's actually a little bit similar to what happens on a much shorter time scale in Missouri when saints are being driven out of places like Hans Mill um, and DeWitt and they're coming to far west for some kind of protection and, and safety. At any rate, uh, we, we've already mentioned the other person with, uh, with uh, um, Porter Rockwell here. If you remember, we had a conversation about Return Jackson Redden. Right? Remember we were talking about Return Jonathan? So Return Jackson Redden uh, and Porter Rockwell are leading a group of these refugees, you know, trying to protect them to get them back to Nauvoo. And they, these guys have been working all night. So they, 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 they rode all the way out to get the refugees. They're getting whatever stuff they can on the wagons. They're leading them back. They're tired. They're hungry. They haven't eaten at all. 
And eventually, Porter Rockwell just, <laughs> they get to a, bre- a break in the road and the, and the refugee train goes on and, and, and return Redden and, 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 and Porter Rockwell, they sit down and Rockwell's like, I'm, I'm not going any further till I have something to eat. <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted. Um, and um, they, while they're sitting there eating and just resting for the first time in however long, they see the sheriff of the county, his name's J.B. Backenstos. J.B. Backenstos is not a Latter-day Saint. Um, he's what would be called back then a Jack Mormon, which is the opposite of, of what we call it. Today we say someone's a Jack Mormon because, you know, they're your uncle, but they drink alcohol and smoke, but also, you know, show up for baby blessings, right? They're, 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 they're technically baptized, but they don't act like they're baptized. It actually has the exact opposite definition in the 19th century. In the 19th century, a Jack Mormon is someone who isn't baptized at all, but is in any way friendly to the Mormons. Because it's such an odd thing that you create this whole class of people like, oh, you're one of those Jack Mormons. You mean I'm someone who's not trying to kill and murder them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a Jack Mormon. Yeah, Jack Mormon. Yeah, I mean, well, what's the, what's the what, uh, don't you believe in God? Anyway, um, so Backenstos is, is, you know, he comes out of the woods. He's sprinting on his horse. And of course, you know, so, you know, Redden and, and Rockwell are, they're, they're, you know, whoa, what's going on as they see him coming out? Cause he's on this other rise. They see that it's a sheriff. And when he, when they get closer to him, you know, Porter Rockwell's like, you know, sheriff, what's going on? And, and, and back and so it's like, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. And, and, and you see, you know, so he's yelling that as he's riding and you see coming out of the woods behind him is, you know, half a dozen men that are riding as fast as they can after uh, back in Stokes. And now they've made all kinds of threats to kill him. And now he's clearly running for his life. And so he's calling out to Rockwell for help and, and to Redden and, um, uh, Porter Rockwell. Um, um, you know, so the whole time back in Stokes is like yelling behind him. You have to stop. You have to stop or I'm going to shoot. You got to stop, you know? And they're just right because they've got numbers on him. You know, they've got him isolated. They've got numbers on him. And he's had several posses out trying to arrest these anti-Mormon house burners. And so I think they think now's the chance. Now's the time. We've got him where we want him. He keeps telling them, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. And they're just gaining on him. And Porter Rockwell yells to Backenstos as he's riding up, should I shoot? And 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 Backenstos says, yes. And so Rockwell apparently doesn't need to be further encouraged. Um, and, uh, he, uh, uh, the, the first two guys coming riding out of the, out of the woods coming after back in Rockwell levies his rifle and he shoots and hits him in the middle of his body and, and kills him. Um, the, uh, when the rifle shot is made and you know, the first guy goes flying off his horse cause he's shot. Surprisingly, the others simply turn around and ride back into the woods. It's the darnest thing about yeah. these. It's a, it's an interesting thing about, uh, cowardly murderers that they end up being cowardly. Um, but, um, anyway, the, 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 the reality is, is that, you know, back in believes his life is saved by the fact that Porter Rockwell, he one shot at this guy, uh, essentially, the person who it was, now I don't know how much of this is just simply angry Mormons venting or defending their actions, but the person who, who was killed, his name's Frank Worrell, and I don't want to lionize anyone being killed. I mean, I, I, 
I believe in peace any way that we can get it. Um, at the same time, Worrell was someone who had, at least according to multiple people, um, he had been one of the people uh, at Carthage that had been going through the door. Now, I don't know whether or not that is true. I think we can take it as a pretty safe bet that Frank Worrell is an anti-Mormon because he's out burning Mormon houses down. And this is right at the same time that Edmund Durfee is shot and killed. Again, I'm not saying Worrell did that, but he's a part of this group that's going around and killing at least one Mormon, burning down their houses. And they clearly had every intent to kill Backenstokes. And he is yelling at them to stop and to stop and they won't stop. And when, you know, eventually Rockwell is given the green light, he doesn't need a whole lot of other green lights. So maybe that does add something to the, to the story that he couldn't have been the one who attempted to shoot Wilburn Boggs because Boggs wasn't on a horse flying through the woods and, and he was only wounded and, and Worrell was, was killed. Backensos is later going to be indicted for, you know, essentially this, uh, for murder, for the fact that Worrell's killed over this, um, this happens a lot. The previous sheriff, actually, he's assaulted by an anti-Mormon. One day we'll do a podcast on minor Deming, someone you've never heard of before, but someone who essentially gives his life trying to defend the Latter-day Saints. It, it's a, it's actually a very touching thing to me. If I ever got rich, which I'll never get rich, mainly because we can't monetize the podcast. But I mean, if I ever did get rich, I would love to create a minor Deming scholarship. Call it the Minor Deming Scholarship of Interfaith Relations or Religious Freedom. Deming was a, a very, he was a very believing Christian, which means he should have hated the Mormons because that's what you do in the 19th century. And he is just desperate to try to defend their rights. And at one point, he is assaulted by an anti-Mormon who tries to choke him to death. And while he's being choked, Deming is able to get to his gun and pull his gun and shoot him. And I've read the letters that Deming writes to his wife and his family. He is, he is traumatized by the event, the fact that he took this guy's life. There, there's no swashbuckling and, you know, well, you know, what's what you do? You shoot him. I mean, he is, he, in a letter that he doesn't think anyone but his parents or his wife are ever going to read, he is unloading the the just the the anguish of soul. He still maintains, you know, I I did it because I, I had to. He was trying to kill me, but he 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 can't get past the the fact that it happened. When he does die uh, from a disease a few uh, months later, his wife actually attributes the whole thing to all of the stress that had happened with, with him and what she writes. And I I love, again, her letter is to his parents. And so she doesn't have a reason anymore to, to falsify what Deming is doing. And she says all because he believed the Mormons should be treated as other people were treated. I'm telling you, it makes me tear up just saying it. This guy threw away his career and essentially his life trying to defend Latter-day Saints and he was not a Latter-day Saint. He never became a Latter-day Saint. He was a very strong Christian believer himself. All of his letters are laced with references to the Bible and the will of God. So, I mean, another thing to think about Christmas season is this. 
all the great, wonderful people. I, I look, I know we spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about what Latter-day Saints believe because it's a Latter-day Saint podcast and it's a, literally about our beliefs. And so to do that, I often have to say, well, we believe this and, you know, Methodists believe X and we believe this and Baptists believe Y. But you don't have to spend very much time with some of our Christian brothers and sisters to realize that while they may not have all of our parts of Christ's gospel, man, they seem to have have the most important parts. The, the, the desperate love that they have of Jesus Christ and so many of them of other people, I can't think of, of, of just something that more commends the idea of the spirit of Christ being given to people. I think it's hard for us. Sometimes we're in a mindset of, of what is it that our, you know, our Christian brothers and sisters don't have, you know, and true. There's a lot of truths that I wish they accepted, but even if they didn't accept any of them, these people are so good. So many of them are sacrificing so much. And you know what? Sacrificing so much to help other people without the knowledge that I have. How condemnatory is that to me? They're doing more with their less knowledge than I am with my more knowledge. So hopefully we don't ever allow our differences with our Christian brothers and sisters to make us feel animosity towards them. Now look, if someone comes to me and says, Joseph Smith's a false prophet and, and, and an adulterer, and yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to come out essentially, you know, you know, rhetorically in a Oren Rockwell sort of a way. I, I, I've always had that problem that, that I, I'm certain Joseph Smith's a prophet and you don't have to believe that he's a prophet. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but if you want to believe he's not a prophet, please just go on quietly believing that. Don't come to me with some kind of fake made-up thing that you read from someone's half-brother's cousin's sister who read something once in a newspaper about how you know the truth about Joseph. Respect him as a religious figure who tried to help people. And, and if you don't believe, you don't have to believe. Um, but So that that's the hard part, right? Is that uh, is, is dealing with it when people are antagonistic towards us. And I, frankly, I've got to do a better job with that. Um, as the first podcast we ever did talked about the the exchange in a chapel. Um, anyway, it's a good time at Christmas to just kind of re- refocus ourselves, remind our kids, remind ourselves that, frankly, some of the best people in this world are, are not Latter-day Saints. And some of the best people in this world aren't even Christians. And yet they're still desperately trying to serve and help others all throughout their life. And that, that I think is one of the reasons why the teaching of Joseph Smith, that those people are going to be saved is so precious to me. I think interacting with other people and seeing how good they are is the reason why I'm willing to say there are millions of Muslims that are going to heaven because they're good people. They're desperately trying to follow God. Millions of Hindus, millions of, of, of Buddhists and, 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 and Taoists and Confucianists who, who, who really are trying to do what they think is morally right. And that's one of the beauties of our gospel. We might seem like we're exclusionary, like, oh, if you're not a Latter-day Saint, you can't go to heaven. But we're actually the furthest thing from it. 
I love President Hinckley. Come and bring all the good that you have and let us see if we can add to it. Joseph had the same sentiment. If we have the greatest light, then we don't actually have to live in fear that someone's going to come give more light than us. Let's listen to what they have to say. Let's treat each other with respect. If you really believe, then nothing someone's going to say is going to change that belief. I've told the story before. I'll often have people say to me, I go and give a fireside or something. And because the fireside, I'm sure, is terrible, people are like, let's find something to ask him about. And people will ask a question, they'll say, Have you ever read anything that has made you doubt that Joseph Smith was a prophet? Now, first of all, I can tell you categorically the answer to that is, is no. Have I read things that demonstrate Joseph's failings? Yep. Just like I've read things that demonstrate Moses's failings and Elijah's failings and Elias's failings. Prophets aren't perfect. They're fallible and Joseph was fallible. Frankly, Joseph was constantly acknowledging how many faults he had. So that's why it's always surprising. Like, yeah, well, you know, Joseph wasn't perfect. Yeah, you know who said so? Joseph. Um, But having read all those things, you know, I'm only further convinced that Joseph is a prophet. But the question, and I don't mean to be too too hard on the questioner because I know what they mean. But there is a part of that question that suggests something that I think we don't fully understand how it is that we come to have faith. I didn't read something that made me believe that Jesus was the Christ. Of course, I did read the scriptures. I did read uh, the Book of Mormon. I did read Joseph's revelations, and those things confirm it to me. But it's not the reading of them that makes me believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God because the Holy Spirit of God has told me those things. And so unless the Holy Spirit of God were to tell me otherwise, that's what I'm going to believe. So you don't have to have all knowledge in the world. You don't have to listen to every one of the podcasts, although maybe, you know, obviously it would help with the numbers. I mean, so that it's not just my mom. All you really have to have is a desire to believe and a willingness to pray and ask God. And I think that's an important, uh, important thing to remember about faith. You don't have to know everything to believe. In fact, you only have to want to believe and the Holy Spirit can touch your heart and tell you. And for those whose path takes them a different direction, a different religion, maybe no religion, I think we still hold out our faith and love to them because God loves them every bit as much as he loves us. So that's a good thing to remember at this time. And thanks so much for everybody for listening. And we will uh, see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.